Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally published on January 25th, 2022, and it was part one of our series about the Kuleshov effect, an interesting psychological effect uh, having to do with film editing. All right, let's jump right in. Hey everybody, Joe here. I'm just cutting in before the music with a brief editorial insert. It's happened before, uh, it happened again. This is one of those episodes that went long. Rob and I originally planned it to be one standalone chat, but it started taking on an unwieldy form while we were recording, so we decided to go ahead and chop it up into two parts. Uh, so this is why in a few minutes you might hear me make references to things I'm going to bring up later in the episode, uh, but we actually won't get to them until part two. So apologies for any confusion on that front. As a general outline, we're going to introduce and illustrate our central topic in part one here, and then we'll be going deeper into the weeds of subsequent research in part two. So without any further delay, I'll now plunge you back into the show. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about a concept known as the Kuleshov effect. Uh, this is an idea from film theory, but I think this will make a really interesting episode because it's, uh, first of all, it's at that, that weird intersection space, you know, the midnight at the crossroads of, uh, of art and science. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, secondarily, I think it's one of those great observations that is simple, almost obvious in, in its implications when, when you first grasp it, but you, the more you think about it, the weirder and more powerful it gets, especially in a historical context. 
Yeah, this is an interesting topic. And one, I have to admit that I, I don't think I'd ever really absorbed before. I don't know if it ever came up in um, any of like the, the, the film classes that I took like in college. Yeah, um, same here. And, uh, and and at the same time, yeah, I, I I read about this and then went out and actually watched a, uh, a, a I watched a film and watched a, you know probably a couple of TV shows over the weekend and so I had it fresh on my mind looking for it and on one hand you do see it everywhere but then you don't like it's uh, yeah it's this thing that that uh, when you're when you first read about it it sounds like oh well this is like part of the blueprint of how film works mm-hmm. and that's kind of that's kind of one of the arguments that's made for it and yet it's not necessarily as apparent as you might expect it to be. But there are some wonderful examples to be, uh, to be uh, dwelt upon. Well, the way I'd put it after having done all the research for this episode is that I think it is sort of part of the blueprint of how film works, except in the way it's usually explained, it's just a few degrees off. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that would make sense. But I'll, I'll explain more about that as, as we go on. A- another thing that's interesting about this, though, is it's something that's originally from the realm of art and aesthetic criticism. You know, it's from film theory, but it also has a sort of mixed research history within the fields of experimental psychology and neuroscience. You know, there's some empirical experiments that seem to find evidence of the effect and others do not find it. And I think Part of the uh, part of the difference there is how you ask the question and what kind of stimuli you use. But it could be interesting to see what the difference is there as well. But I, I guess we should get straight to explaining what the Kuleshov effect allegedly is. So in the words of the authors of a 2006 uh, neuroscience paper by Mobs et al. that I'll refer to later in the episode, the Kuleshov effect is the following proposition. It is that, quote, The manipulation of context can alter an audience's perception of an actor's facial expressions, thoughts, and feelings. Yeah, yeah, and this is something that is at at the the very root of everything is uh, is based on theory of mind that we as humans look at another person and we simulate what's going on in their head. What what are their thoughts? What are their motivations? uh, What are their intentions? Etc. Um, uh, so yeah, it's theory, theory, theory of mind at heart, but it's not just the face. It's also something else. And basically this gets into just, uh, into filmmaking and editing. Right. It's the, the idea of montage, uh, that's the word that's often used here, but, uh, that would probably give us ideas of a very specific technique of like, mm-hmm. you know, you're like the training montage the training, in yeah, the Rocky exactly. film or something. You should actually be thinking of montage when we say it in this episode more broadly. It's not just that it means the uh, the arrangement of different shots into a sequence through editing, no matter what kind of technique you're using there. If you're taking different shots and putting them into a sequence, that is montage for today's purposes. Yeah. And, and again, it, it all comes back to editing, the way the footage is put together. You can basically think of it as like face, POV shot, face. Um, for instance, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, described it once as being a situation where, okay, again, think of three shots. First shot, he says, is man looking out the window. Shot number three is a man smiling. Now, uh, what you put in that second slot, what it, whatever that second shot is that you insert, that changes the context entirely. Now, uh, as we were discussing before we recorded here, this Alfred Hitchcock example, though widely cited, is also a little imperfect because if you want to get right down to the like the core theory it's just it's shot one should be a man looking out a window shot number three should just be that man looking out a window no smile 
but it still comes down to what is shot number two, because that changes how you think about that man in shot three. Right. You seem to see something different in the man, even though you could use the exact same footage of him. So the editing context changes what we think we see in a previous or a subsequent shot, even though you're using the exact same shots. So one of the funny th- in, in Hitchcock's example, he uh, he talks about this in a famous interview. I think he did. Uh, with maybe it was with the CBC or somebody, but uh, but he was using the example of okay in the first uh, sequence, imagine that the middle shot that's intercut there is like a a mother playing with a baby, and in that case, oh, he's a kindly old grandfather man. And then the second option is that the middle shot is a woman in a bathing suit, in which case he says, then you perceive his smile as being that of a dirty old man. And I guess it kind of helps because it's actually Alfred Hitchcock they use in the visual example. <laughs> uh, now, we'll come back to more about what this idea is and, and what it might mean. But uh, maybe first we should just do a little bit of biography on the the, the namesake of this idea. Uh, so the Kuleshov effect is named after a guy named Lev Kuleshov, who is a uh, Russian filmmaker and film theorist who... I I think, I don't know, you could say it was like a major force in the history of film theory and uh, and is primarily responsible for popularizing this alleged effect. Yes. Uh, Lev Kuleshov, who lived 1899 through 1970, Russian director, film theorist, who started out in art direction and some acting before moving increasingly into directing, experimental editing, and scholarship. He was one of the founders of the world's first film school, the Moscow Film School. And uh, yeah, he introduced the American film concept of montage into Soviet cinema based on examining the works of directors such as D.W. Griffith. And uh, as David Golevsky points out in his book, Early Soviet Cinema, he, quote, played a more significant part in the development of the golden age of Russian cinema uh, than any other figure with the exception of Eisenstein. And uh, this would refer to uh, Sergei Eisenstein, another big name in film, uh, a, a big, big name Russian film director of the time period, theorist of the day who uh, listeners might know from such films as uh, Battleship Potemkin from 1925. That's the old uh, baby stroller down the stairs movie, right? Mm. Now, one thing I do remember from actual film classes that I took in college was that a lot of early Soviet cinema does make use of the montage more in the sense of uh, the specific film technique where you're like taking a bunch of different images and and putting them together to suggest a kind of uh, uh, a kind of sequence or progression more like the training montage uh, but the, the main example I remember there is a movie we watched by uh, Vertov called the man with the movie camera which is mm. basically the whole movie is just a montage uh, of of you know Russian public life. By the way, uh, if anyone out there wants to hear us talk even more about silent film, we did an episode of Weird House Cinema um, some point in the last year where we did like a silent film double feature where we we picked out uh, just a couple, maybe three different silent films and talked about what was neat about them and just talked about sort of the, the challenges to the modern uh, viewer uh, that, that silent film poses, but also the rewards of watching them. So uh, what one of the, the main things Kuleshov was doing here. Uh, was that he was he, he wasn't even uh, even even shooting new footage in these experiments. Uh, he was taking uh, pre-existing footage, silent film footage, usually um, czarist era silent film, and recutting them to to see what could be done. Uh, with this montage feature, like how how to arrange the uh, the, the footage to get different um, 
you know, emotional results. And a lot of it was based, again, in looking at what was going on and what seemed to be working in, uh, in, in, in Western film, in American film, uh, specifically, again, like the work of D.W. Griffith. And uh, just in general, Kuleshov was, was somewhat controversial at times, apparently. In, in these, uh, these experiments, uh, you know, he's looking at American models, Western models. So he was accused by Communist Party members at times of appealing to Western ideas and forms too much. And he's also uh, apparently been accused of living it up during tough times in Russia and destroying si- archive silent era films during this editing work, uh, which, again, uh, the, the work that w- wasn't really based that, so much in shooting new footage and experimenting with how you might edit them together, but taking pre-existing footage from the archive and editing it together. Right. Now, as a director, Kuleshov is apparently, and, and I'm, I'm speaking largely of a, a director that I really didn't know anything about before. So, Yeah, uh, me neither. But uh, he's apparently best known for 1924's The Extraordinary Adventures of Mr. West in the Land of the Bolsheviks. He also <laughs> adapted the works of Jack London and O. Henry. But uh, especially for this show, we should really highlight that he also made a Death Ray spy thriller. I thought this was really interesting. Somehow, I guess this never came up when we did our invention episodes on the death ray. Mm -hmm. Or if it did, I've forgotten about it because this seemed new to me, but it fits right in there. Because uh, if you haven't heard our uh, episodes of the invention podcast on the death ray, those were some of my favorites that we did, especially because we got to talk about an invention that never really existed. And yet uh, was the, the subject of a popular fervor, you know, that like people were really excited about death rays for the 1920s and that just, there was never any such thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the invention itself never existed, but you had kind of a global death ray fever going on and this is 1924. So it's right smack dab in the middle of it, a film titled Luch Smurti or the death ray. Uh, Gillespie describes it as quote, a relatively violent film about international espionage. (laughs) So I had to look in. I, I looked at footage, the, the available footage that I could find of it wasn't, uh, wasn't super great to watch, uh, but there's some impressive stills. The, the plot is spot on for what you might expect from a Soviet death ray movie of the time period. We follow a socialist revolutionary who has to flee an unnamed uh, fascist capitalist country. Uh, the socialist revolutionary has to flee to the Soviet Union. And once there, he is introduced to the new technology of the death ray, which can uh, explode gunpowder at a distance, which is a key detail because that's exactly uh, the, the sort of thing uh, that was part of the, uh, the death ray fever that we discussed in the invention episode. That's right. So the brief top line on that is that uh, basically a lot of this death ray fever came from reaction to the horrors of long range bombing, aerial mm-hmm. bombing in World War One. And people wanted the idea of something that could shoot bombers out of the sky from a great distance before they got to your cities. And the death ray filled in that gap. Exactly. So basically, uh, the evil spy follows him and steals the death ray technology so that they can use it to suppress labor strikes. But don't worry, the labor strikers steal the death ray technology back and use it to blow up their oppressor's bomber aircraft, which is about to be used against the uh, the strikers. This almost makes me want to compile and watch a list of all the death ray movies of the 1920s. <laughs> Just put them all together and see see what kind of picture emerges. Yeah, yeah. Or and I'm I'm curious, like, what is the best death ray movie? I'm I'm, I'm assuming the best death ray movies came later. Um, mm. Uh, came in the wake of films such as this. 
Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage with over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, so that's Lev Kuleshov, and I wanted to get a little bit into the background of the, this idea of the Kuleshov effect by consulting his own words. So I found a book called Kuleshov on Film, Writings. This was published by the University of California Press in 1974. I, I'm not positive. I think this might be a reprint of some earlier writings of Kuleshov's. But 
the context is I, um, I, I was consulting an early section of this book where he's discussing a series of investigations he and his colleagues carried out in the late 19-teens and into the 20s, essentially to try to figure out how film actually works. They, they were asking questions like, how do audiences make meaning out of the images they see over the course of a film? Uh, which is a great question, and it is something that early filmmakers really had to figure out. We we can take a lot of film meaning making for granted these days because uh, you know uh, film techniques are so well honed these days that they're often invisible to us. You know, you you, you if you watch a professionally made movie. You will you will not even notice the fact that, say, all of the eye lines in it have been aligned correctly so that when a character looks at something and then it cuts to that thing, it's lined up so that it's not confusing. But that's like a technique that had to be learned. And there are tons of things like that. They're just invisible to us now, as as a lot of good filmmaking techniques are. I mean, ideally, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, well, I mean, there are different ideas at this, but you know, a, a common view I think among a lot of filmmakers is that techniques should not call attention to themselves, but instead should disappear and allow you to just become totally absorbed in the narrative to help bring about the raw experience quality of of modern cinema. Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean that's something I I I like to stick to. I mean, unless the film is so uh, poor. <laughs> and it's uh, execution that you can't help but but notice it, you know. Well, when yeah. uh, and certainly there are plenty of examples of that. But so Kuleshov and and colleagues are trying to investigate how does film work? Uh, what what are the techniques that that cause an audience to think or feel a certain way? And so famously, uh, Kuleshov feels that he has achieved a breakthrough when he starts to discover the power of montage or editing. He starts to think of editing as a sort of master key behind the power of cinema. Uh, And he believes that montage has a power greater than simply showing you a series of moving images in sequence so that you think, well, one follows the other. Instead, he comes to think that by ordering shots in a sequence – you actually change the meaning of the shots themselves or change the perception of what is contained in the shots. And there's a memorable example that Kuleshov describes in the book. I'll I'll just read it directly. He says, I saw this scene, I think in a film by Razumni, a priest's house with a portrait of Nicholas II hanging on the wall. That that, that would be the czar, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the village is taken over by the Red Army. The frightened priest turns the portrait over, and on the reverse side of the portrait is the smiling face of Lenin. However, this is a familiar portrait, a portrait in which Lenin is not smiling. But that spot in the film was so funny, and it was so uproariously received by the public, that I myself, scrutinizing the portrait several times, saw the portrait of Lenin as smiling. Especially intrigued by this, I obtained the portrait that was used and saw that the expression on the face in the portrait was serious. The montage was so edited that we involuntarily imbued a serious face with a changed expression, characteristic of that playful moment. In other words, the work of the actor was altered by means of montage. In this way, montage had a colossal influence on the effect of the material. It became apparent that it was possible to change the actor's work, his movements, his very behavior in either one direction or the other through montage. 
I thought this was a great example because I haven't seen the film in question, but mm-hmm. uh, but I can understand exactly the effect he he's describing here this, with this portrait of Lennon because of the tone of the scene. The context makes it darkly comedic, like it's funny, but it's also threatening that a a serious or neutral face could be perceived as having a kind of wicked grin. Mm, yeah, I, you know, the, 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 this reminds me just in general of. Um, yeah, anytime you have kind of any kind of a portrait, be it a painting or a photograph, um, I guess the you know just in general outside of film, uh, it can seem to take on different dimensions based on what you are doing or what your mindset is. If you're sort of imagining that the um, that the subject of the painting or picture can see you, or you're leaning into that sort of uh, interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like, why is Vigo the the Carpathian uh, staring at me like that? Is he is, uh, is he proud? Is he angry at me? Is he smiling? Oh, that makes me wonder. Did they it, when they filmed Ghostbusters two? Did they have multiple paintings of Vigo with slightly different expressions on his face, or Ooh. did they just use one portrait and and rely on the Kuleshov effect for oh us to kind God. of read emotions into it? I wish I thought of this earlier. <laughs> well, anyway, so we're about to get to the uh, description of the main alleged experiment that establishes the, the this that we're about to get into canonical Kuleshov effect territory. So following this realization uh, uh, about uh, the power of editing or montage to change what is perceived within the shot itself, uh, there's this famous story about an experiment Kuleshov supposedly carried out to put the idea to the test. Uh, and I want to flag at the beginning here that multiple sources I have read raise questions about whether this test ever actually took place in the way it is described. Um, but I'd say it doesn't especially matter because we're going to be just using this story to illustrate an idea. Then we can look at other tests later, not to provide evidential force that it, it must be as Kuleshov says. So whether or not this event actually took place exactly like this, this is how it's described in a book called How Movies Work by Bruce Kaywin. Uh, this was uh, University of California Press, 1992. Uh, Kaywin writes as follows about Kuleshov's uh, experiment. He found some old footage of a pre-revolutionary actor named Ivan Mazhukin, a single long take, probably a makeup test, in which the face showed an unvarying neutral expression. Kuleshov then cut three different shots into this take, one of a child playing with a toy, one of a bowl of soup, and one of an old woman in a coffin. The sequence went as follows. Face, child. Face, soup. Face, woman. Face. When he showed this short film to an audience, although this may be a bit of cinematic folklore, they remarked what a great actor Mazhukin was. They enjoyed the subtle way he expressed affectionate delight at the child's playing, hunger for soup, and grief at the death of the woman, whom they assumed was his mother. The Mazhukin experiment, as it has since been called, had a permanent impact on the theory of screen acting. It showed that audiences will read shots in terms of each other, and therefore that a film actor, who ought ideally to underact, could allow the montage to suggest some of his or her emotions and thoughts. The point for our immediate purposes, however, is simply that the impression of continuity is often generated by the audience. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll come back with some additional history of uh, research to to build upon this later, but Kuleshov used this alleged experiment in support of his broader theory of how film worked, uh, one of the main points of which was that the soul of a film was in the editing process. 
and that the edit of the film actually had more power over the film's effect than the contents of any individual shot. Uh, I think another way of phrasing this is that the way you edit your footage together is ultimately more important than what an actor does while the camera is rolling, because the meaning of an actor's performance can be totally changed by the editing context. And in fact, uh, Kuleshov allegedly carried out a couple of other uh, experiments along these lines that are known sometimes as creative geography and creative anatomy. Uh, creative anatomy would be using shots of uh, parts of different bodies from different actors, creating the illusion that they all belong to the same person. So you can show a different person's hands, lips, legs, and so forth, and create an imaginary composite person that doesn't exist. Uh, he also did the same thing with physical geography. So he would have, for example, a shot of people walking along a street in Moscow and then maybe going up a staircase and then going to a mansion that was actually the White House in Washington, D.C., creating the illusion that they're all there's just one continuous walk all in the same place, but they're on different continents, which at the time they looked at that discovery as revelatory. They were like, mm -hmm. oh, wow, like you actually don't need to <laughs> shoot stuff that's in the same geographic place in order to suggest being in the same geographic place. You can invent geographies that don't exist out of different parts. Which, of course, now is just, this is just how you make films. Right. You know, you, you, you have one exterior and you, maybe the interior is a set or it's somewhere on the other side of the country, you know. Um, you know, you read, you read any behind the scenes making, uh, just any of your favorite films and you'll find stuff like, uh, like the library and Ghostbusters, the first Ghostbusters film. I think parts of that are in just, you know, they're from all over, depending on whether you're outside or you're inside or you're in the basement. Right. And then, uh, and then also when it comes to the anatomy question here, I mean, it's, it's why you have stunt doubles, body doubles. It's why you can finish a film, uh, even though Bella Lugosi died while shooting it. Right. So <laughs> that's probably, you're getting into the, the poor example a bit in that, that uh, specific example. No, Plan 9 from Outer Space is a, is a wonderful <laughs> example of, uh, of what you can do with the magic of cinema editing. Yes. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like 
feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but but to get back to the core idea here, the sp- and, and I think it'll be important for us to think about the Kuleshov effect in a couple of different ways. One is just the broader idea that editing context can radically change the meaning of individual shots, which I think we just all know from experience is, is obviously true. This is a, a fact about how uh, movies work. But the other thing is the more specific claim of the alleged Mojukin experiment, that you can take a totally neutral shot of an actor's face displaying no emotion whatsoever, and by intercutting it with other footage, you can change what the audience perceives in those shots of the actor's face. You can The audience will come to think that uh, you know a neutral face intercut with uh, image of a child playing is like a happy parental uh, you know thing, and, and like a bowl of soup means they're 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 filled with pangs of hunger, even though it's the exact same neutral footage of the face. So that's the more specific claim, and I think it's that second one that's more questionable, but but also interesting in its own regard. And and we're going to look at at least a, a couple of papers about that. As we go on, but I thought it might be good to just discuss a few examples that this uh, the thinking about this effect calls to mind mm-hmm. from uh, from movies that you and I have seen. And one thing I find very interesting is that at least personally, anecdotally, I feel a kind of experience of the Kuleshov effect, even the more specific version with neutral faces in movies that don't actually involve real faces. Mm. Uh, a really great example I came across was mentioned on the TV tropes website for the Kuleshov effect. If you've never, never, never been to that website, it's a great, it's like a wiki style, you know, user submitted content, but it just includes big lists of different sorts of uh, conventions of, of uh, TV and movies and things like that. Narrative conventions, filmmaking conventions, uh, cliches and such. And so they've got a page on the Kuleshov effect, and it mentioned HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, 
which I thought was a fantastic example. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I, I wouldn't have thought of it at first uh, myself. But yeah, you just have that red light. Uh, Hal has no face at all, not even a semblance of a face. Exactly. So yeah, it's not even a computer screen that kind of looks like a face. It's just a red light. Uh, and so that completely removes the possibility of picking up on cues and micro expressions based on the, the feelings or mind state of a human actor. Hal's face is just the light. And yet the editing context, at least for me, absolutely causes me to read emotional expression and emotional content into the red light. So sometimes, depending on what it's being intercut with, the light looks calm. Other times, the red light looks suspicious or even paranoid. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think this is this is this is a great read. Um, it it reminds me of another example that I, I ran across. So I was I was just looking for. At first, I was just looking for mainstream examples, you know, and uh, I ran across um, a video from makingstarwars.net that points to some examples in Star Wars. The first of which is a, is just pretty pretty standard, I imagine. Um, you have the scene where Luke is surveying the, the destruction of his aunt and uncle's home. You have shots of devastation, shots of, uh, of Luke's face, uh, you know, so they inform each other. But the more impressive examples, I thought, were were discussions of how you have shots of Darth Vader during the final confrontation in um, Return of the Jedi. Uh, this is a, this is where uh, uh, Emperor Palpatine has uh, has had Luke and Vader fight, and then Luke refuses to kill his father, and so uh, the Emperor is just going to force lightning him to death in front right. of Vader. And we, of course, you know, later in the film, we we see Vader's face, but you don't see Vader's face. You just see this uh, this. Emotionless uh, bug skull uh, helmet, mm -hmm. uh, but in that scene where we're we're seeing what he's seeing, we're seeing shots of Luke suffering, writhing under the agony of the Force lightning. Um, we 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 see that change in Vader, even though we don't see his face. I totally agree. I think this is another great example. Yeah, it's just the mask, so you can't be picking up on human expressions. But yeah, you read expression into the masked face based on uh, what's happening to Luke. You start to almost see him feeling compassion. Yeah. Uh, another example they bring up is the Mandalorian TV show, where through most of it, the, the title character of the Mandalorian does not remove his helmet. And you probably have more room to even explore how this works in that TV show because you know Vader Vader's you know generally dealing with severe situations uh, but mm -hmm. in the the over the course of the Mandalorian TV show you have him interacting with with light and cute things with comedic things as well as serious things and so there's plenty of opportunity for that uh, again this you know emotionalist Mandalorian helmet in this case uh, to to, uh, to seem to convey uh, different emotions uh, and of course, that's not to discount body language and plenty of other, um, you know, cues that uh, uh, enable us to lean into it. But but still, uh, you know, all these things work together to help us form that theory of mind. What's going on inside Vader's mind? What's going on inside the Mandalorian's mind or Hal's mind? Absolutely, yeah. Another great example. Uh, now, one example I was I was looking into and thinking about too uh, brings us back to Hitchcock. I was thinking about um, Psycho. Uh, hmm. Which of course has has a number of scenes that are very iconic and uh, you know we, that easily come to mind and you may even be able to picture even if you haven't seen the film uh, but there's there's one scene in particular where Janet Lee's Marion Crane is changing clothes in her room at the Bates Motel Norman Bates played by the the handsome Anthony Perkins uh, is in an adjacent room he approaches a picture frame he removes it 
and he reveals a peephole. Uh, he puts his eye to the peephole, and we switch to a POV shot of his voyeurism. Here is Marion Crane undressing. Then a close-up of his eye- eyeball, like side view of his eyeball, staring through the peephole. She moves out of view in the, P- in the POV shot, and then he places the picture frame back over the peephole, back still turned to us. But then he turns, and we see his face, and he and, and his face is very interesting in this performance, and particularly in this scene, because it is... I mean, it, it's hard to, to to register exactly what he's feeling. Like, it's not it's like blank, he looks... Yeah. It's kind of blank. I mean, I end up reading into it if I'm, you know, if I'm thinking about it. Like, what's he thinking? Obviously, I know what's about to happen. He's going to go in there and kill her while she's in the shower. So it's easy to read in like grim determination. But he's not like you know snarling and snickering with uh, with with fiendish uh, desire in this uh, scene or anything. Um, uh, and uh, it's also interesting to think about this in terms of of subversion because um, you know we think of Anthony Perkins now. We think of Psycho. We think of him playing this um, this uh, very troubled, uh, murderous individual. But prior to this film, he was like a, a Jimmy Stewart esque leading man and a former teen heartthrob. So, <laughs> so Hitchcock was subverting this uh, image in Psycho. So it's it's interesting to think about that watching a scene like this. Yeah. Though I also have to add that having your character look through a, a peephole like this is is hardly like neutral. Uh, right. Yeah, no, something. that gives us a different idea of him. I mean, in the scene earlier, he's he's got a very boy next door kind of energy. He seems, uh, you know, just kind of like a sweet, shy, handsome young guy. Yeah. But yeah, once he's looking through the peephole, that does charge the way we read his face very differently. Right. Now, speaking of Hitchcock and uh, and voyeurism, it's also worth uh, uh, worth noting that uh, Rear Window, uh, starring the actual Jimmy Stewart, has plenty of examples of this sort of thing where you know a lot of that movie is Jimmy Stewart's character looking through a telescope, and then we have POV shots of what he is seeing uh, in other apartments. And then right. he reacts. And then it cuts back to him, yeah. Uh, now, one one more sort of, it's sort of an example of it, but also kind of a subversion of it is a Spielberg face. Oh, yeah. This is the close-up <laughs> of awe and wonder on an actor's glazed face in reaction to something they're looking at, like a like a big old shark or a UFO or a field full of dinosaurs or something. Well, in the more specific sense, generally, I would say these are not neutral faces, but they are mm-hmm. faces that are... Clearly, they're having some kind of powerful inner experience, but it sometimes might be ambiguous if you were to just see the face by itself. Uh, but then when it's intercut with what they're looking at, it's it's very often awe. Right. And and sometimes this is actually manipulated to, uh, to uh, comedic effect online. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the Jurassic Park sequence where they're, you know, they're awed, they're getting out of the car, they're just, you know, completely zombified by something utterly amazing and holy before them. You don't know what it is yet. I mean, you know it's going to be dinosaurs, but you right. haven't seen it yourself yet. And uh-huh. so I, I feel, feel like there have been a number of, uh, of comedic bits where someone has, has inserted something else there. Uh, uh, you know, something maybe more mundane than uh, than gigantic dinosaurs brought back to life through science. It's the new Taco Bell menu item. Or- exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we ended up having a lot to say about the Kuleshov effect, actually. So uh, I think we're going to have to call part one there. But when we come back, we can talk about some uh, some attempts to replicate the original Kuleshov study some interpretations of what may be lying behind it to the extent that it's true, and then maybe uh, a little more research about ambiguous faces in general. 
In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed with core episodes on Tuesday and Thursday, listener mail on Monday, Artifact on Wednesday, and hey, we're talking about film, so uh, be aware that on Fridays, that's Weird House Cinema, that's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird or unusual film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.